Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the RC Report. I am the aforementioned host, RC. The RC Report is a part of IBN. You can find us on iTunes under IBN. Please give us five stars and a review. If you're not giving us five stars, don't review. Today, I am joined by a very special guest, one of the most thorough uh, draft guys that you will ever find, Matt Wallman. Welcome. Hey, RC. How are you? Doing pretty good. Good to be back with you. Uh, if you don't mind, my audience, some of my audience, it's grown a lot since the last time we talked. Uh, tell them who you are and what you do. Sure. Um, I am the founder and creator of the Rookie Scouting Portfolio, which is a draft publication that comes out annually since 2006, and it's devoted to the valuation of quarterback, running back, wide receiver, and tight end. And this is a full-time job for me. Basically what I do is I scout those talents. I use a process that I learned um, when I was in operations management as a director um, at a company over the course of about a 14-year career period and applied it towards football. Um, it's something that has appealed both for draft Knicks media, um, some NFL personnel, according to at least um, some people that I've met within the league, as well as um, people I know who do recruiting um, on the college scene and interact with NFL um, scouts on a weekly basis. Um, and so the, the, I have a site, www.mountwaldmanrsp.com, that provides a lot of content based on my YouTube channel, which is the RSP Film Room. And I break down players at those positions, sometimes doing three to five minute um, video shows and analysis up to hour long in-depth shows, sometimes even with guests that have included college players, um, some pro players, as well as various media and draft analysts in the community. I've written at the New York Times blog, as well as I'm a senior staff writer at footballguys.com. And uh, that's what I do. Yes, folks, I uh, I was thinking about this interview and way to describe Matt. And a lot of times guys will say that a draft guide is your Bible. Uh, I grew up going to church. So Matt and his draft guide and his videos, they aren't your Bible. They're like the commentary. No. They're an exhaustive <laughs> commentary on everything that's the draft. And often if, you know, I'm not getting into religion, but the commentaries are bigger than the Bible itself because you have so much to explain, so much to break down. And guys, there are a lot of people on my site that love draft breakdowns. And Matt is as good as it gets. You want detail. He's your guy. So let's get into, uh, let's start with quarterbacks because you do the skill positions. A lot of it has been made of this trend. I'm not sure how much of a trend it is, but the media narrative of, of it is, is that these under six foot quarterbacks before you don't touch them, but now you do. When you're evaluating players before we get, well, you can get into specifics, but as you're evaluating players, how much of an impact is on a quarterback when he's under six foot? How much does it impact his game? It doesn't impact it to me at all. And that goes back to when I was, you know, before I started this publication, but I was doing some fantasy football writing and was starting to get into delving into uh, scouting. And I was a big fan of Drew Brees and seeing his game. And, you know, you had the influence of guys like Drew Brees and Doug Flutie, and you could see that size really didn't impact their games at the level that people made it out to be. Um, so for me, the, the difference is really about 
the value of the player skills versus the value that NFL teams place on a player and sometimes based on information that is erroneous. And I think that that's something that's slowly starting to, um, you know, teams are starting to slowly realize that height is not as much of a big deal as it's made out to be um, because you're actually throwing between passing lanes more than you are trying to throw over defenders. And a good example of that is with Kyler Murray, who's 5'10". And, you know, I've charted 10 of his games, you know, in detail, and he had one batted pass during that time. Whereas you look at a guy in contrast like Daniel Jones, who had, I believe, over had double digits in that. I don't remember the exact number, but double digits in, in pass, passes deflected over that same span of games charted, and he's 6'5". So, you know, you basically the, the only real issue might be that occasionally if a defender's in the, the quarterback's face, you know, he may have a little bit more difficulty getting the ball around or over a defender. But those are such isolated situations that if you're going to not draft a player because of that, then you're probably not prioritizing what's important about quarterback play well enough. So what about the thought that when the pocket closes down, that they're unable to see, you'll see Russell Wilson scramble a lot to some degree. Murray scrambles about what about that thought that as the pocket collapses, they can't see. Yeah, I would say that that's also true of a lot of quarterbacks and a lot of quarterbacks who are tall just can't see the field very well enough as well. And if you're waiting for the pocket to close and most of your situations are that, then you're also probably not being efficient with what you're reading when the pocket is actually open. And when you look at Russell Wilson, I mean, if, if Russell Wilson's a failure because um, he has to scramble because the pocket closes, then, then, you know, I'm not sure what we're judging because Russell Wilson's won a Super Bowl. He's taken to his team with in one play of winning a second Super Bowl. And, you know, and he's a guy that has often played with an offensive line that has been lackluster at best. So, you know, there are numerous ways of getting the job done as a quarterback. And Russell Wilson sees the field very well. And the most the best quarterbacks find simple solutions in difficult situations, and usually they find them early in the play before the situations get out of hand. So when, you know, if you're leaning on a quarterback to be the athlete and run around and avoid defenders and make throws in tight spots more than you should, then you're probably not getting the best quarterbacking overall because even if you're mobile, even if you're athletic, even if you're tough, the, the best quarterbacks still, again, even if they have those skills, they find those solutions with their mind and reading the field early enough that they don't have to resort to that as often um, as they're capable. So as we get into that, we get to the aforementioned, quote-unquote, short quarterback. seem like uh, the most uh, anticipated height measurement in the history of football with <laughs> Kyler Murray. But on the field, what do you see when you break down Calamari? Yeah, and, and the way I see him is it's an, it's an odd player comparison, but I think it's a good basis to kind of go back and explain how this all fits together. And that's that I see a player who has a lot of similarities in terms of how, what type of offense he'd be successful in, and that player is Carson Wentz, who is obviously a lot taller. He is someone who you know is a lot bigger and taller. But when you look at the way they play their game, Kyler Murray is very accurate. 
um, especially in the short and intermediate and what I call the vertical range of the field, about 29 yards to 42 yards in length. And he has high level of accuracy there. He's someone that's very good at identifying the quick openings in an offense where you're where you have some setups with um, read option, um, you know, with zone reads, with play action, with different option types of looks that can distract the defense or freeze them and give Murray just enough look um, opportunities to, you know, hit a tight seam in the middle of the field. He has good, you know, and he has better deep accuracy than Carson Wentz. But also, like Carson Wentz, he can buy time in the pocket when pressure arrives and force uh, defense to get out of position and then throw the ball over the head of the secondary to a receiver who snuck behind them. That's where they are both have a lot in common. Where they're a little different is that Kyler Murray is more accurate in the deep range of the field than Carson Wentz. Um, he moves his feet better when he has pressure off the edge and he can just do an in-rhythm hitch or climb and then throw to the next receiver. Whereas with Wentz has a little bit more difficulty with that. And when he, and they both have some issues there, but for Wentz, what happens is that he'll move side to side and when he tries, he doesn't reset his feet well and he's off balance when he throws and he becomes inaccurate and his deep game has never been accurate. Um, so that's why they put him in an offense with some of those quick reads so that he can just throw off a quick set, you know, inside about 30, 35 yards and not have to move his feet as much unless he's, making big off-script scrambles and throwing it over the receivers, um, over the defender's heads. With Murray, he's someone that when he feels pressure off to the side um, or up the middle, he tends to lean on his athletic ability to the point where he runs to the next open spot or he jump cuts to the next open spot or he jump stops to the next open spot. And he has to then reset his feet and get his body in a balanced position again and even if he's looking downfield, he's not in position to throw the ball accurately. So it costs him time to deliver in rhythm from first to second to third read when he behaves in that fashion. It's not consistent um, in terms of with every type of pressure, but with certain types of interior pressure, he tends to abandon that um, in rhythm climb and balanced climb, and that can cost him easy solutions. And that's probably the biggest area um, in addition to that the only thing about his size that's a concern is that he is on, he has been on the small side of things and he waves the ball around a good bit when he runs and as he moves in the pocket and he can be vulnerable to having the ball knocked loose because he's never going to be a 220 pound guy with the strong core and strong arm to really keep that ball cinched tight against 300, 325 pound guys. So he may have a little bit more, um, vulnerability to having the ball knocked loose, especially if he's not protecting it well. But those are things that, again, aren't major issues with his game. The um, the uh, the pocket presence and movement is probably the biggest one. And I think that, you know, as long as he can continue to develop and work on progressions um, and, and progressions that are separate from just things that are built into an offense with the quick reads, um, where you're, it's designed to look off a defender in one direction and go to another, but one where he's actually doing more manipulation outside the scope of the play or supplementary to it, then I think you have a player who has a tremendous amount of upside and could easily be the best quarterback in this class. Interesting, because this is the first time I've heard Carson Wentz be a similarity or a comp, 
and I think it's actually good when you explained it, they play in a similar way, even though their size isn't the same. But the crutch uh, comparison so far have been Baker and they've been Russell Wilson. Why? What do you see that's a similarity or do you see similarities or do you think those comparisons are off or how do you feel about those comparisons and comps? Well, I think that Kyler Murray is a much better runner than Baker Mayfield ever will be. Um, I also think that he has a bigger arm than Mayfield has. Um, and while I, at the same time, I think some of their pocket issues and strengths are similar. Um, whereas with Baker, I saw a little bit more manipulation in his game in terms of manipulation of defenses. Um, so I felt like that that's not quite as accurate as I would look for. Um, and then when I talk and then with Russell Wilson, I mean, Russell Wilson was a guy that I really liked. Um, coming out of school and it was fairly well documented and um, Wilson to me was a little bit better pre-snap he was a guy who played in two different two very different systems both in a system that was kind of more from a spread at NC State where you saw him scramble around and make plays but you could also see him you know make pre-snap reads and make some really good pre-snap adjustments and get rid of the ball quickly and move in the pocket in rhythm and in ways that weren't always as, um, you know, running from spot to spot, though he could do that as well. Um, and then also in the West Coast offense, you saw him in Wisconsin where he he just showed more from under center. So there was a little bit more to work with and a little added dimension in Wilson's game that you didn't see from Murray that Murray may be able to do and develop into, but there's not proof of that visually in on his college tape. Let's move to Haskins. When I first saw Haskins and I see him during the season and I've looked at it a little bit, it seemed like he was the one that was making a lot of NFL throws, a lot of throws that you, and I know that's kind of trite, but a lot of the throws over the middle of the field, 10 to 15 yards that he seemed to excel in. But as time goes on and people have analyzed him more, it seems like his stock is dropping. And I know that's an elusive thing because it's media-driven, but the report's coming out now, the teams aren't as high on him, and that he struggles with pressure. What is your take on Haskins and his uh, potential projection? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's a couple of things. I think that um, Dwayne Haskins to me, probably outside of whatever has been going on with the whole um, thoughts of the media and how um, a lot of people rank um, players, a lot of the way a lot of people rank players is this, is that they will, they will often have to give rankings throughout the year. And because they're giving rankings throughout the year with a player, um, they're going to see more and see new things about that, about those guys in ways that that's going to change their ranking. And then they're going to, and so it hasn't, it wasn't like a complete view of who he is. And as a result of that, that's why it kind of goes up or down. I, I tend to try and stay away from that, watch enough games and then, rank him at rank, give one ranking at the end. And, and so for me, I think that maybe what's happened here is that, you know, there was a lot of excitement about, about Haskins early on because of his production and because Ohio state's winning and, and you see that and, and that's going to give him a lot of uh, buzz early on. And it's going to send him a little bit higher, maybe in, in someone's rankings when they're, they're doing it as they go. I call them soap opera rankings. And, you know, and so in the soap opera at first he's riding high and then when they start to scrutinize them a little bit more, they might find some flaws here and there that 
you know, that he needs to address. And that may cause him to drop a little bit. Um, or as other players, they start to appreciate their games. That also kind of creates him a drop if they're raising some other players above him. You know, but when I look at Haskins overall, you know, I see a player who is good at being able to throw off platform to a certain degree. Um, he's not going to be a guy who's going to evade the pressure with the same dynamic athletic ability that Kyler Murray has, but he's someone that can kind of sidestep and deliver, you know, deliver an off balance throw within a shorter range of the field, um, you know, on platform. I think that, you know, you see, I've charted his games and he's very high in the short and intermediate areas of the field. As you mentioned, he has some promise in the vertical game. He's not always pinpoint accurate um, in the vertical and deep games, but there's enough promise there that he throws passes that receivers can get to, and he should be able to shore that up a little bit. Um, and the same thing is true of him in, you know, on opposite hash throws. You see some real promise there with his arm strength to deliver the ball to the opposite side of the field. And his, his mobility is really limited to being accurate in the short and intermediate game. So, the, you know, it doesn't make him a superstar in terms of an athlete, but the way that he reads the field is pretty good. He's only been a one-year starter. So, you know, the big things that you kind of have to think about is that he's going he's gonna to need another year or two to just get acclimated to, you know, what he does well on the field. Because in the college game, you could see there are certain things that he didn't do earlier on his tape, like early in, in the season, that he started to do with a lot more confidence later. And one of those things was something as simple as pump fakes to begin the year. He gave very few pump fakes, and when he did, it was kind of more of a ball fake and not a, much movement with his arm, more with his shoulder. By the, by the Rose Bowl, he was delivering full motion pump fakes with violence. You know, so, and that's just an example of someone who's become more comfortable in what they can do and start to put that out on the bigger stage. And so I like his patience. I think he doesn't always see big play opportunities based on what the coverage is showing him pre and post snap. And if he can get better at finding those easier solutions, I think that as long as he has good protection around him, he can be a fine pocket quarterback. And I think of him in terms of like older school players that come to mind, like a Drew Bledsoe, a big arm guy who can move just enough for you in a, in an offense that has predetermined kind of play fakes with little half rolls or rollouts. Um, but, you know, that's kind of the extent of what you're looking for there. And he can sit in there, take the punishment, deliver the ball. And so as long as he has a good supporting cast around him, I think he can be a productive starter. If if you were going to describe, and I know it's a little gimmicky, but work with me. Uh, if you were going to describe Drew Locke in one word, maybe a couple words, what would you use? What words would you use? <laughs> Light switch. <laughs> <laughs> that's your way of saying he's really inconsistent right or maybe that's he turns correct. on and off which is the same thing that's exactly it <laughs> he's a so, you know go ahead no I was saying uh, explain the inconsistencies that you see yeah absolutely because you know you want you want your players to be thermostats with how they approach things and Drew Locke you can see he's got the great arm he can throw off platform he has a lot of velocity to his throws and he can get the ball accurately downfield in a pinpoint range in the vertical and deep areas of the game he's probably one of the best making those types of deep throws but the problem is is it's all or nothing with his game in that regard he's not 
you know, he's either pinpoint or he misses a high percentage of those throws. But what's funny is the percentage that he makes is high enough to put him in a star accuracy tier. Um, that's something hard for some people to kind of resolve, but you kind of get a boom bust player in that regard. And then also you see that very much in his footwork with quarterbacks. Footwork is so important because it really tells you a lot about what's going through that player's mind because the feet execute in rhythm to what the mind is processing. And you can see with Drew Locke that, you know, against teams that are not the best in the SEC or not or non-conference teams that are not high-end caliber um, opponents, he'll tend to walk back from, from the snap. He'll kind of be slow with his feet. He won't always try and set in the platform when he's pressured or moved out of the pocket. He won't try to reset and fire. He'll just kind of use his arm to find the spots he needs to find. And as a result of that, he, he, he can be inaccurate in areas where he shouldn't have to be. He, he should have been able to make those plays. But then you'll see him against higher-end opponents like Alabama's and Florida's, where early in the game, you can see him go, you know what, i got to be on my A game. And you'll see him play with better tempo and rhythm and precision with his footwork, and the early passes are more accurate until the pocket starts breaking down and he has no choice but to be off-platform you know, off and not throw from – um, balanced stances. But the thing is, is that you can't try and turn on and off what you, you know, what you're supposed to do just because now you're in a situation where you have to rely on it. Cause if you do that as a performer, no, whether it's any kind of performance, whether it's sports or the arts, if you're not constantly working on your technique and keeping it sharp, then you're not going to be able to just lean on it at the drop of the hat unless you are truly one of the most exceptional people in your, you know, in your industry or genre. And, and I'm talking like a handful of people in the history of any of those things are ever capable of doing that. So Locke is a guy who that if he can work on his game the right way, continue to stick with it and not, you know, and I think coaches just kind of enabled him, letting him play that way because they were successful enough and he was productive enough. And he's going to, in the NFL, I don't think it's going to work that way. So he reminds me a little bit of Jay Cutler or maybe even an older school guy like Jeff George, who has a lot of talent and could probably be, will show a lot of potential for success and some great skill at times that few people will be able to show, but he, he won't be able to do it consistently enough without the, the daily work and becoming more disciplined at his craft. So Daniel Jones of Duke, I know a lot of people, it seems like I'm putting up my quotations and my air quotes that he's moving up the draft boards. But when I look at him, and he was an interesting prospect, when I look at him, I see, and I don't want to use the word game manager, but I see a guy that's more dependent on a scheme than a high-level quarterback would be. I kind of view him as a foes, where if you run the right, run the right system, you get the early reads and you scheme a guy open then you're going to have success. But if you're depending on second reactions or the longer the play takes to develop, you're not going to have as much success or he won't. I like that. I, I like that um, that comparison to Nick Foles. I kind of had a guy who was hoping he could be Ryan Tannehill, um, which is, and I think Foles was a little bit more of a, a more athletic comp, um, you know, really more athletic comparison in terms of between the two guys. Um, also, as well, you know, when I look at Jones, I think he's kind of the old school mentality of what um, a lot of quarterback scouting or evaluation 
has been about. And, and, I, and it's not necessarily the scouts, because I think when we look at this draft process, what often happens is scouts will do like a year, year and a half, two years of research on a player. Um, but as weird as it sounds, what will often happen is even with all that research that's sent up to general managers and owners is that the, the team from the scouting department angle will know who they think is a good fit and either a coach or a GM or the owner at the, the, the final hours, you know, and I'll say the final hours is really this final three months from like, you know, from January through April, they will change their mind. It'll be someone over top will change their mind because they spend more time listening to what the media has to say than actually following through with what their, their staff has done with the work. And a lot of that sometimes has to do with ticket sales. It has to do with um, perception of what they think will be good. It has to do with certain risk management choices. You know, unfortunately, we still sometimes live in a society where, you know, guys like Dwayne Haskins and Teddy Bridgewater are going to get questioned more um, about their leadership skills and what they have to offer as opposed to a guy like Daniel Jones, who it's no fault of Daniel Jones. It's just how people have tended to look at things in a way that is often biased and, and as a result of, and deep rooted. And I think as a result of that, Daniel Jones is a guy who kind of fits that realm of, he comes from a, you know, a, a good private school an academic oriented school. And he worked with David Cutcliffe who had success with Peyton Manning and Eli Manning who were great pupils. And obviously, Cutcliffe is a good teacher. He's had a lot of college players who've worked um, with his, under his tutelage who've had at least a shot to, to, to get drafted by the NFL. Um, but Jones is a guy who doesn't really put it all together. His footwork lags behind how he, he views the field, so he's often inaccurate. He often makes four reads. There are times where he will stare down reads or, or come off too quickly from one read to the next. There's times that he has a lot of miscommunications with receivers pre-snap and post-snap to where they, they, they don't make the correct adjustment for him or he's not anticipating the correct adjustment and throws the ball into the wrong place. Um, and then as tough as he is in the pocket, as athletic as he is, um, it's just one of those situations where he's just not quite accurate enough. He's at a reserve level of accuracy or maybe a, a top-level backups level of accuracy in a lot of areas where he should become, you know, where he's not quite at, he's not at the starter level. And I think all of these different little diagnoses, issues that he has, his footwork issues, he just doesn't process the game at a fast enough take for me. And I think that that's why I saw him kind of as a Ryan Tannehill type of guy. Um, but I like the I like the Nick Foles comparison from a physical standpoint. This is something that happens. Well, actually, before that, um, you made a really good point about the scouts. The more I follow on Twitter, the more podcasts I listen to of former scouts, a lot of times they will bang on the table or say, hey, I wanted this guy. And fans will say, oh, it's the scouts. Scouts thought this, scouts thought that, when really is the general manager or is the owner or whatever. But, yeah, we, uh, I think the general fan blames every draft pick to some degree on the general manager and scouts. But when I heard you talk about Daniel Jones, I wanted to get you – on a philosophical thing where we break it down quarterback a lot of times. And I heard this a lot about Hackenberg, unfortunately, but a lot of times guys will say, well, the people around him, or there are a lot of drops and the guys aren't getting open. 
and you feel free to disagree with me. But when guys, when people are making excuses for the, uh, prospects like that, I think that what happens is they like a particular aspect of the prospect and they're willing to forgive things when reality is either the prospect, chicken or the egg, either the prospect developed bad habits because the blocking was bad or they felt like they had to do too much or like Daniel Jones, they're already flaws and both are true. They have a lot of flaws and at the same time, the weapons around them aren't good. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the case. And we're all, you know, this is a subjective area, whether you're doing it using a lot of data that's numerical based or you do what I do oftentimes, which is I define everything that I, I evaluate in writing and I stick to what I to my definitions of what my criteria is for evaluating. That's something that I show in the RSP in great detail. And my process is very transparent. But when you define what, you know, intermediate accuracy is, or you define what good footwork is, or you define what good, uh, good releases are, then you're tracking data when you're tracking whether they do it well or not. And so what can happen though, is whether you're, However, you're look tracking information, there's still some level of subjectivity to it. And you can have biases about that. And, and we're always fighting against biases when we're evaluating um, people and performances. And so as a result of that, it can be easy to be forgiving about something or think that it can be fixed or it can be addressed um, or certain combinations of flaws are correctable where certain combinations are not. And players are kind of like snowflakes in that sense. They're all very, they're all unique. And when, when you look at them, you know, you look at snowflakes falling from the sky, they all look very much the same until you examine it under a microscope, you know, and then you see that they're incredibly different. And I think that's the same thing when it comes to evaluation. And with Jones, he's a guy who I, I think that you have to understand that you know, people are going to probably be forgiving. And also because teams also don't always look at players at the level of um, depth and define things as clearly as they could. So they rely on things like, well, he has the size, he has the weight, he has the, the big name program, he has the arm strength. We can, you know, he has production. We can teach him the rest. He can learn the rest. But they don't. But quarterback development really isn't very much a strong suit in the NFL. Quarterback coaches who work with a lot of college players will tell you that, and also pro guys who are outside the league but playing maybe in the CFL or back in the Arena League or in a, a number of other professional formats will will tell you that the NFL is not very good at at their development, and they haven't placed a lot of um, emphasis on that. And I think a lot of that has to do with contracts. A lot of that has to do with trying to figure out what good development practices are. Um, and as a result of that, these players are often left to their own devices to get better. And sometimes one of the flaws that quarterback coaches have in, in the NFL is that they tend to overcoach players. They tend to micromanage certain types of processes and end up hurting their game more because they're not aware of things like that bot different body types lead to different types of throwing motions, different type of drop setups different types of movement and biomechanical movements that if you try to say everyone needs to throw like Tom Brady, then you could actually be ruining a player. Um, so, and then if you get players overthinking about all of these little processes, it's kind of like, you know, I, I always talk about music as a music background and often talk about performance in that way. Well, when you learn technique on how to play a trumpet, 
you understand which valves you're supposed to press down to, to get certain notes. And there may be certain types of techniques you can use to, you know, to give different fingerings of these valves to get similar notes or different types of effects. And if you're overthinking about that while trying to play something expressive that you're trying to make up, you're not going to be able to make music. You're not going to make it well. It's going to sound stilted. It's going to sound overthought and it's not going to have the impact and the, um, that it should. And it's the same way with a quarterback if he's overthinking his process because teams are coaching him in the wrong direction. What instruments did you play? Or, or just the trumpet or other stuff too? I'm just curious now. <laughs> I was a saxophonist. I wanted to be a jazz musician, so I played oh, saxophone. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. <laughs> All right, let's move Don't to play. running back. Uh, what are your thoughts in general on this class? It's a very difficult class because – there are a lot of players very closely um, ranked together, but they are very incredibly different guys in terms of how they play their games. And running back is a very diverse position because of the fact that you can have, you know, a five seven five eight guy in Darren Sproles who's 175 or 78, 180 pounds, and then you can have a guy like Brandon Jacobs who's six three two fifty five, and they both can be productive backs in the NFL. And that spans the position of several different other ones like cornerback, safety, linebacker, defensive end. I mean, that's the height and weight range of those four positions right there. Um, and they all have different types of, you know, athletic prototypes and metrics that people use to measure them. Whereas, in the, you know, a lot of people tend to measure running backs as one size fits all. And the way their size and how they move, whether they cut or dip or bend around um, angles, at a high speed can those are different types of movements and some players lean on those differently than others and some players and that means that they don't always have to have the same kind of metrics to be successful some can be slower some can be faster some can be you know quicker and have better acceleration some can have a slower get off some can have slower change of direction speed others can have to be really quick I'm have, and you have all these different combos. And there are a lot of players in this draft class beyond, the, I'd say, the top four to six who could be successful with the right fit to a scheme. Um, and then there's a lot of players who are getting ranked fairly highly who you look at them and you go, they're short, they're light, they're slow, they're not, they don't accelerate all that greatly, they don't have great change of direction and quickness, but they have incredible vision and figure out how to manipulate defenses using that vision and maybe they could succeed, but the, but the onus is on them to show that because there aren't a lot of players with a track record of success where they don't have certain baselines of athletic skill. And it seems like we have three to five players in this class who fit that kind of, that kind of could they be exceptional? They've been that way up to now, but it's a big jump to the NFL. What's your stance in the ongoing debate that seems to have ebb and flows on the devaluation of the position? I think that it goes this way, is that you have, that running backs do matter less. Um, that's something that is, that has been, has happened because of the changes in rules. Um, you know, we have more of a, you know, there's more av advantages for the quarterback in the passing game. It's opened up the passing game. Um, so you don't have to lean on a strong running game every down thing that the, the fact of the matter though is is that can lead to people thinking that the running back position is an unskilled labor position and I think that that's an incorrect 
um, conclusion to make from these changes. What it really, what I think is really going on here is that, you know, back in the early 2000s and before that, when you had dominant feature backs, they didn't have to be great receivers who worked the slot or worked outside and ran intermediate routes like wide receivers. Um, they were used as dump-off specialists at best. You occasionally had a Marshall Falk or a James Brooks who, Brooks who could do that type of work, but they were by far the exception to the rule. You could have guys who were more like Jordan Howard in the league and were superstars for doing what Jordan Howard does. Um, and so as a result of that, as the league started to change, or the, the requirements for running backs changed too, now it became more of a fundamental um, need for running backs to have skill as a pass protectors, to have skill with reading various um, blitz looks that were, are now different and more complicated than what they've seen in what, what running backs are in the past. Now they have to be more complete receivers than they were in the past. And that's just for the baseline requirements for the position in ways that, you know, before it was like Marshall Fox and James Brooks were like the exceptions to the rule. And they still work, would be exceptional today. But there are more, but the baseline has, um, has basically climbed and increased to the point that now, you know, running backs have to come in with multiple tools to, to be at least contributors. And because of the fact that teams have figured out that they can pay running backs less money, draft them lower, and use them in segmented roles as opposed to overall role, you're seeing that also kind of play out in a way where, you know, you're not seeing as many complete guys and it's harder to be a complete guy in the league, I think now than it was then. It was a tougher era of football back in the past, but from a technical standpoint, I think it's a tougher era now for the position. And as a result of that, people don't see that. And so, you know, the, the running backs who quote unquote matter, who are feature backs tend to be guys that force teams to play um, certain types of coverages that are difficult to, um, that, that or play certain types of coverages that they have to honor the running game and that they can't cheat towards the passing game. Ezekiel Elliott, Saquon Barkley are two examples. Todd Gurley are examples of those types of players. Um, but there aren't a lot of them who can do that at this stage. So it's kind of a complex thing where, you know, they matter less. That's true. Um, but it's, but they're not unskilled. They're actually maybe more skilled than they've ever been, but the demands because of the changes to the passing game have kind of exceeded their ability to catch up and, and be, and have as many feature backs as we once did. So let's uh, look at a couple backs in the class or two or three backs to you that really stand out. Sure. Um, you know, I think that, I think that you can, we all can pretty much say that Joshua Jacobs and David Montgomery are often talked about as very, very good backs. And I think they both deserve that, um, that type of commentary. They're both strong. They both play with balance They're, They have good vision in terms of being able to process information and find creases and be patient with doing so. I think Montgomery's a little more creative. I think that if he, if, if his vertical leap at his pro day is, uh, is a, is a more of an indication of what, a, of what his explosion and length strength are compared to his vertical leap at his, um, at his, um, combine, 
then I think you're seeing a player who might have a slight edge over Jacobs, but it's really close enough that you're looking at Jacobs as the more efficient runner. Montgomery is a slightly more creative runner and maybe even more powerful runner. Um, but other than that, there are a number of guys who are interesting that are all over my board that I like. I think Alexander Madison could turn into a surprisingly good starter in this league. He has excellent acceleration and quickness. I think he's a smart runner who can um, you know, work between the tackles, but has enough burst to get outside. He's shown he can carry the load and, be, and, and also someone who can catch the ball on the backfield. Um, I think he's a very physical, intelligent, and quick player who um, had a much better 40 time in his pro day too, which may also kind of add to his value. Um, you know, a guy like Dar- Darwin Thompson, I think, is interesting as a as a back who might give you that Deion Lewis with a little bump in terms of his athletic ability, his strength, and, and, and power. And I could see him fit into a specialized offense that spreads the field a little field a little more uses them on draw plays against nickel defenses a little bit. And he could be kind of that Chris Thompson, Deion Lewis, Darren Sproles type of role player um, who could give you a high production. And then a, a, another guy that comes to mind is Daryl Henderson. I don't have him rated extremely high in my main rankings that are just based to look at the running back position from a feature back standpoint. But if you look at it from a, you know, spreading the field and, throwing the ball to the receiver, using him in space more often than using him between the tackles and in stacked boxes. And Daryl Henderson could be one of the best players at the position in this draft class because of his terrific speed, his low center of gravity to run through reaches and wraps side of his body, and his skill to be able to work downfield and catch the ball and make adjustments, um, you know, that are that are receiver-like. If he can develop really even more as a receiver, then you could see him become an exceptional player. So those are some guys that come to mind right away. Now, I'm going to play a little game with you to mix things up a little bit. I'm going to pretend to be the GM. And I personally, before I start this, I like Akeem Butler a lot. I know you like him. I like. I know Josh Norris likes him. I saw a couple of clips that he posted early on, kind of in the process, maybe in January. And I was like, well, who is this guy? And I started looking, and I started really liking him. And I, I know that you really like him. But let's say I don't. I'm a skeptical, skeptical GM because there's so many people in the Twitter draft community, and even like some for, some former scouts like Daniel Jeremiah and Bucky Brooks that don't have him very high. He's not in Jeremiah's top 50. There's some other guys too so if you if i'm the gm and you you're really standing on the table or beating on the table like they say for hakeem butler what would you say yeah well i would assume that we obviously have an offense that fits what butler does well which is that we need someone yeah we're going to assume that because because i wouldn't be recommending them otherwise you know if we just need a split end then maybe i can understand why he'd want someone else but if you're you know, obviously we know that we need a guy who can play a little flanker. He can also be in the slot that we want to move around our players to get matchups. And Hakeem Butler's perfect for that more than any other player in this class. He has the size. He has the ability to bend his, um, bend his ankles and his knees and drop his weight into routes that are hard-breaking timing routes. And you know that we run a lot of those in our offense, and we need someone who can be versatile enough to, to get separation in all those different roles. And Hakeem Butler can do that. And yeah, I know he drops the ball higher than average, just like DK Metcalf does. 
But the thing is, is we've seen players throughout the history of this game, Ocho Cinco, T.O., um, Brandon Marshall, who are high-volume, productive players who have helped teams win because of the fact that the types of drops they have are concentration drops. And as you know from the way that we scout players on this team, we separate out concentration drop away from technique-oriented drops or ball-tracking drops, which are more serious and, are, and become more problematic for the types of plays the types of targets that you can throw to a receiver. Butler can handle all sorts of targets. He does it at a high level. He does it well against tight coverage after the catch. He's a hard worker. He's someone that has really good character. And so when you can get a player who can be a game changer at all three positions and do it with speed, with power, and with grace, um, why wouldn't you want to have this guy on our team? Well, I've been reading around, and the knock I hear on him, which you convinced me, but I was already convinced, but the knock I hear on him, or just if I'm being me again, is that uh, the route running, and he lacks kind of the nuance and the early part of the routes he struggles in. What would you say to that if another scout was in a room or something? Sure, I'd say, well, we can go roll the tape again. And some of the things that we see that are predictive to a player becoming more successful, he has. You know, all most players struggle early on in the route because that's the separation aspect of it. But he shows a number of different tools to use his hands and feet to gain separation. And he often has as much success with that than than you would see. In, since I think you, we find more success with him than failures in that regard. And it's something that he's already going to be able to address a little bit more. It's one of the easiest areas to fix with a player who's already shown that ability to be technically sound. And maybe, you know, if his routes need to improve, it's more the nuance of being able to tell a story because the hardest thing about being able to run a good route is to be able to drop that weight and decelerate fast. And he decelerates fast. He does the hardest part already. Now it's just about learning the, the refinements that he needs to learn to become a great route runner. And he's already working with one of the best that's ever played in the game in Calvin Johnson. And if, you know, and they match up pretty well physically when you talk about height and weight and quickness and speed. So Johnson and him are a good match to be working together. And the fact that he's already doing that and addressing these issues is a proactive take that tells us that we have a guy who's willing to work to become the player we need him to be. Do you have a comp? Yeah, I think he's a mix. I think he's kind of a mix between Calvin Johnson and Plaxico Burris in the sense that he can win the ball physically like Burris. He's not quite as um, he's not quite as fast as Calvin Johnson, but he's a guy who can play kind of inside outside like Johnson does and be a physical player um, at the catch point in addition to running timing routes that we need. So he's not just a 50-50 guy. And because we can move him all over the formation, he gives the versatility that those two guys did. How hard is the evaluation of DK Metcalf? To me, it's not very hard. He, you know what he is. You know, he's, a, he's an X receiver. He's a split end who's going to be lined up on the outside and asked to run deep routes and then use that threat of being a deep player to working back to the quarterback on curls and comebacks and some speed outs and maybe the occasional dig inside. And, and hopefully he'll develop more of a slant game, more crossing routes, things like that, and maybe develop his route tree a little bit more. But you can, if you're looking for a guy who can take the top off the defense or catch the ball short, break a tackle, and be an absolute terror to try and chase down, then 
DK Metcalf's going to be um, productive for you right now. The, the, the big issues with him are, is he going to be able to bend well enough to drop his weight and, and bend at his knees and his ankles to decelerate fast enough into some of those timing routes that break back to the quarterback. Right now, you could say he gets away with that in the college game where he's not quite fast enough to do it, um, but because teams are most opposing defenders are so scared and give him respect of a very big cushion, he has more time to get back to the quarterback than he may in the NFL. But he's also incredibly strong and violent with the use of his hands at the line of scrimmage. And I think that he's going to be able to um, win separation on the basis of that often enough. And he may not, he may need some work to be able to win against the top cornerbacks in the, in the league who are the most physical, technically sound, patient guys. But he's going to win, he's going to win his share of them and still give you a chance while he's working at his craft. So I'm not so concerned about him in terms of, you know, how we would, how he'd be used. If you're using him as a, if you're using him as trying to be an all around, he can play all three roles on, on the offense then you're, then we're not looking at the right guy for the team. But if we're looking at him to be that X receiver, then he's as good as any in this class. I got a listener question here. Uh, Joe HG says, well, we asked about his, his prospects, but his uh, question that we haven't answered is his thoughts on whether his neck injury affects his ability to track the ball. It's a good question. And I, and I think that um, I didn't see major ball tracking issues with him. Um, the, the issues I saw with him lose, um, dropping the football had more to do with him being able to um, get his hands in the correct position or making the right diagnosis of when to put his hands in the correct position. Sometimes he would try to use an underhand technique on a ball thrown really more at his chest and above where he should have had his fingers pointing to the sky. And this is a common issue that a lot of young receivers have, and they just have to get work on the jug machine to make that judgment call a little quicker and not get their hands put, not end up putting their hands in the wrong position. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether the neck injury is an issue with him, but I haven't seen enough. I don't think we've seen enough to see whether that's going to become a problem. And I think that if he had limited range of motion to be able to track the ball, he probably wouldn't be, he would probably be a major injury red flag at the combine and his, and we would have heard about it by now. Uh, so we've gone, it's been a great conversation, but we've gone Look, at the pace, not quite. So I'm going to kind of give you a couple of receivers in this last, you know, 10 minutes or so, and just kind of give me your, your, uh, I don't want to say lightning round, but yeah, your quick take, finish or two on these different receivers. Uh, Paris Campbell. I think Paris Campbell is someone that's considered raw, but the things that he does fundamentally are refined enough that he's going to be able to um, develop quickly. He's an electric player, and I think he's going to make an impact sooner than people realize. Marquise Brown. Marquise Brown. I think he's also a guy that he he's not he's not Deshaun Jackson to me. I don't think he's as physical as Deshaun Jackson was but he's good at being able to create separation in unconventional ways. And he plays a little bit better in between the hash mark than you might expect. And I think that he would, while he doesn't normally play in the slot, hopefully he'll develop as both a slot player and maybe a flanker who can have big impact. 
I'm going to slide in another uh, listener question, and you can kind of take it as uh, – I know you don't have as much time to explain it as you might want, but just do the best you can. Is A.J. Brown really projecting as a slot receiver in the NFL? If so, what traits make him more appropriate for a slot as opposed to the outside? Yeah, I think it's because he reads the field pretty well. He understands to find the open um, scenes, and he's someone that is physical so that he can make plays at the catch point. Think of him as a big slot receiver. Um, I think he's one of the safest wide receivers on the board because he can also play on the outside as a flanker or a split in and win the ball in the air, but he's also very good with his quick first step after the catch. So getting him in the space in the middle of the field where he can you know, deflect the first tackler, make the first man miss, who's a little bigger and slower than he is, is a really good thing. He, I, I, if I were to make a cross comparison across sports, I'd say he's kind of like Magic Johnson in the way that he doesn't look like the position he plays, but he can play multiple roles, but he really is at his best at the position that he's slotted at. All right. One of my personal favorites is Debo Samuel. Yeah. Debo Samuel. I, I joke that he can kill you with a death blow or a thousand paper cuts. He can get deep on you but he can also run around you or through your de- your defense. And he's someone that is extremely quick. He may have to work on his hand usage to get separation off the line. He may have to fulfill a little bit more of a um, – to kind of um, fill in more of his route tree and be a little bit more versatile um, as a route runner. But I think he's a guy that can develop into a primary threat in the NFL and at the worst, a, a big play threat who's kind of the 1A to the top guy. Another polarizing guy uh, that we haven't talked about yet is Nikhil Harry of Arizona State. Yeah, he's, you know, I think he's a big slot weapon. I think he's going to earn significant targets inside and outside the red zone um, or targets outside. And then then they could use him in the red zone as an outside receiver well. But I think in the middle of the field, you'll see a lot used as a slot receiver, especially towards, you know, routes that break towards the sideline, like corner routes or deep um deep uh, crossing routes. He's good after the catch, though not extremely fast. Um, He's fast enough. He has good quickness. He's rugged. I like him a lot. I think he's a fine player who will make an impact early on. Now, this is one of your favorites, or or I heard through the grapevine, or Game of Thrones is coming, so a little birdie told me. Uh, Miles Boykin, Notre Dame. Yeah, absolutely. Miles Boykin is, I, I think he's the real combine wonder. Um, and he's a, he's a very complete route runner. He does a good job of being able to drop his weight and break back to the quarterback, which is the basis of the most difficult routes you have to run. He tracks the ball extremely well. He's physical. He's someone that has good moves off the line of scrimmage and can build on and develop more of them. He's skilled after the catch. And when you look at, you know, that short shuttle 4.07 and a 6.77 three cone drill, that's slot receiver numbers in a 6'4", 220-pound body. This guy, I think, is the real mix of Josh Gordon and Terrell Owens, and I think he can be um, a dynamic player early in his career, even this year. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. This is great, as it always is, and so are you. Uh, one more time, can you tell everyone where we can find you and where we can find the uh, Ricky Prospectus? Yeah. You bet. Um, RC, thanks for having me on. And and the Rookie Scouting Portfolio is available at mountwaldman.com. You can just buy it right there. There is a video tour of previous RSP, so you can get an idea of what it's about and see a little bit of tour of it. I'm available on YouTube. You can see my channel there, the RSP Film Room, and it gives you over 300 videos of analysis that I do and my 
my blog or my site where I provide a lot of content is mattwaldmanrsp.com. And if you're a fantasy player, you can also catch me at Football Guys, where I'm the senior staff writer there. Thank you so much, Matt. Awesome as always. Hey, thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Matt Waldman. We got so much. That was a meat sandwich, so much. Full meal, full buffet of great NFL draft talk. Again, you can listen to Matt in all those places. You can find him in all those places he listed here. If you want to support the podcast, if you want to support the brand, go to iTunes and give us five stars. Thank you very much. Until next time, this has been RC.